All right, hello and welcome to Between the Liars with Ryan, Josh. Hello, everyone. Austin. Hey, everybody. And Marcelo. Hello, everyone. And today we're going to be talking about the Paris Climate Accord. This is something that came out in the Obama administration era. So it's been a little bit of time. However, with Joe Biden being back in office as someone who was previously a part of that administration and also one of his big pushes on his campaign trail being adjusting for climate change, this is something he's talked about trying to get us reinstated in, start rebuilding uh, those connections with other nations. And it was also something, if you listen to our last episodes about the infrastructure bill, climate change was a big part of that as well. So we're going to give you a little bit of background on this, and then we're going to debate whether or not we think this is a good idea, whether or not it addresses what we'll be getting into, and where we think we can go from here to actually address climate change. So with that, I'll turn it over to Marcelo. Okay. So for some background, uh, the Paris Agreement uh, or the Paris Accords is a uh, a set of documents, a set of agreements that were initially um, established around 2015. Um, the goals, the main goals, what they're trying to do is trying to limit global warming uh, and specifically under two and possibly 1.5 degrees. But as we'll talk about later, that might not be achievable at the moment. Uh, and, and why? Well, because the planet is warming up and we don't want that. There's a lot of that I don't know how specific I need to get into why global warming is bad, but in short, we shouldn't want that. Uh, we we should probably aim to reduce uh, global warming as much as possible um, to try to stay alive and keep this planet alive for future generations. A large part of what the Paris Climate Accord and these treaties are trying to do is to reduce how we put um, what we call greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And these come into a multiple source. And everyone likes talking about carbon dioxide, but there's also ones that are, there are much fewer of them in our atmosphere. However, um, they're much more potent at causing additional warming to happen to our planet, stuff like methane, um, and in some cases, like an increase of water vapor and how that plays out. So what the timeline they were looking at for the Paris Climate Accord is to basically cycle down how much people are contributing to global climate change in these five-year phases as we move forward towards this eventual goal of bringing our emissions down to pre-2005 levels. Well, less than kind of pre-2005 levels is this weird state because we're trying to mark some countries down while understanding that other countries are going to go up while they uh, develop and industrialize to the same level as, say, the United States or Germany. We see this playing out in China. So the goal is, though, to get carbon you know, emissions sufficiently low enough that we don't cook the planet with us on it. So as Marcelo mentioned earlier, this was an Obama era. Uh, it this took place during the Obama era back in 2015, specifically December 12th, 2015 is when the Paris Climate Accords were signed. And with Biden being president now, the United States entered into the Paris Climate Agreement in February 19th of 2021. Uh, this included a large bevy of nations uh, that signed the agreement, 197 countries, but not all major emitters were included in this, including Iran, Turkey, and Iraq. They are not on the Paris Climate Accords. It's a very large undertaking by numerous countries all across the globe. When Trump came to presidency, he pulled us out of this. He said that it was a very bad deal uh, for the United States and it was lopsided. Some of the specific things that he thought were lopsided uh, was when we came into this accord, China uh, was only committing to a 20% boost in non-fossil fuels and then 
then they said that they would, quote, hope that their emissions peak. So they weren't taking quite as tangible of an approach as the United States was agreeing to. And then also at that same time when Obama committed us to this program, the U.S. was set to or their their promise was to try to reduce their carbon emissions by 26 to 28 percent by 2025. So we'd be coming up on that in the next four years or so. I would like to add that uh, most countries are in here. Uh, We've already mentioned it, but almost every major country, every major player is part of the Paris Accords. The only major player who wasn't was the U.S. until we rejoined. But right now, we say 197 countries, 190 of them have uh, taken steps towards uh, setting those standards according to the Accords. Um, the only countries that haven't uh, joined the accords uh, are either small or very small. Um, they account for around 4% of global emissions. Uh, and so that is, you know, they exist, but they're not as relevant as the people, the countries who are already inside of the Paris agreements. One of the things when Trump was criticizing the climate accords and then when he took us out was like, you know, we're getting a bad deal. And a lot of the things that the American media likes to talk about nowadays is we're looking at China's emissions. We're looking at, well, China's past us. was a couple things to consider. One, China has about three times the population we do. So it's going to be very easy for them to pass us. If every Chinese citizen lived like an American citizen, they should have about three times more emissions than us because there's just a lot more people over there. And the second thing is that China's a developed Developing countries. So in more rural areas, they depend on older technology like coal fire plants to power rural regions while they build up their hydroelectric infrastructure. And it's worth noting that even in like China's private companies and by their government, they're spending a lot more on the hydroelectric future and moving past fossil fuels than even America is. But again, that's also because they have a lot more people than us. So it's easier to spend um, a lot more money and, ha- and seem bigger than they really are. So one of the main claims was that China wasn't actually adhering to what they had said they would do for even cutting emissions. So in 2018, China's carbon emissions were projected to be on track to grow at their fastest rate in six years. And I'll definitely give you that they have a larger population. I think that this speaks to one of the problems with creating, in in effect, a very large group project, right? Because we're all affected by climate change because we all live on this planet. However, some people are doing more. And if one person pulls out, like China, like if China allows their emissions to keep growing, then we're all affected, which then causes at the time President Donald Trump to say, this is a bad deal. We're being restricted. China's still growing. Therefore, he gives up and pulls us out. So then it kind of, it's almost this arms race to complete climate change at that point. What are your guys' thoughts on that? I think that, and uh, you know, not hot takes yet. I think just because one country doesn't want to help or doesn't want to qualify help as much um, doesn't mean that we shouldn't do everything we can. Because I, as we will hopefully talk later, um, I don't think this limits us economically as much as uh, we we think it does. And in, in reality, investing more in climate change prevention and renewable resources could actually be and will actually be more positive for our economy. Only for the fact that we already have individual states and cities in this country already doing it and seeing positive results. So I believe that even if China wants to burn their side of the planet to the ground, uh, the U.S. should do everything they can to try to make some change. 
I think something that um, Josh hit on a little bit when he was talking about China is an important factor, talking about their growing shift to hydroelectric. I think that kind of brings a bigger point to the conversation of innovation. And I think that's where a lot of our key strides we made in preventing climate change, or excuse me, mitigating as much as we can of climate change. You can't really prevent some of these things if we're going to be technical. But the biggest thing, and I think the biggest name of the game is innovation, whether that comes from, you know, here or from another country, I think any innovation we can have as far as technology and growth is going to be a good thing if our goal is to prevent the emission of more uh, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. The more access to diverse technology we have, the better. And I would also point out a large part of these conversations that we have when we talk about climate change, um, we need to talk about even like here in America of like overconsumption. Because here's a good fact for you. If the rest of the world ate red meat beef at the same quantity as Americans do, there would not be enough grasslands on the whole earth to pasture all of those animals because Americans eat a lot of red meat. This isn't my campaign saying, you know, you, you can't eat these things, but it's this acknowledgement of it's really easy for an American to expend a lot of uh, climate resources, if you would, the, the, you know, what's left of the climate and the ecosystem has to give for us than individuals um, for different countries. And so that can really allow us to reflect on what individuals can do here in a given country to help because like you're an American can very easily use as much electricity in a day as a lot of people in the world will use in a month, if even a year. I think that that ties back very nicely to Marcelo's initial thought that we are all in this together and that the very premise of the Paris Climate Accords was to divide up that responsibility based off of what are you emitting. China is the top emitter, uh, just even if you just want to go with the fact that they have the largest population, but they were emitting twice the rates and are emitting twice the carbon emissions than anybody else. Second place is the United States and the carbon emission rating for them was a 10.06 and for the United States was a 5.41. So I think that the fact that we're all in this together is important to acknowledge. I think it's also important that we divide that out based off of uh, just what are you contributing. But I also think that it raises a very important point of if China pulls themselves out because they're the largest contributor, it can have the largest effects as well. We can talk about feasibility then. Um, if China pulls out, then, well, first of all, it hasn't. We were the ones who pulled, well, we didn't even join in the first place. Um, so we were the ones who, uh, in a way, did it first, America first. Uh, just kidding. Uh, if China pulls out, does that mean that we should? I, I don't, I still don't sense the com the competition argument. It's like, oh, well, because you don't want to save the planet, then I don't want to save it either. So, you know, you know, uh, screw the planet from both ends. I don't really think it's reasonable to say that of the binary of like, oh, well, if the highest emitter is not doing their part, then I guess the second highest emitter doesn't have to do their part either. It's, I, I don't think it's fair for the 195 countries after that. Well, and unfortunately, as you get lower down on that list, those countries have the least amount of power because they're already doing such a small amount of the emissions that even reducing it is, is not going to make that much of a difference. I agree with you, Marcel. I don't think that that means that you're supposed to just stop. But I think that that's the tendency that's going to happen. China didn't pull out, but they kind of stopped doing what they said they were going to be doing. So when their emissions start growing, even though they're still a part of it on paper, I think that that means that, you know, they're reducing the feasibility portion of it because of the fact that they're not doing what they said. 
Well, I think it's, and this will be a quick note on my end here, American emissions are growing. Americans pollute more in 2021 than we did in 2020 and we did in 2019, and we'll pollute more in, in, into 2022. Um, American emissions will probably peak sometime in 2040 or 2050 before they start going down, even if we follow the climate accord. So that growth of the world is accounted for in these accords. And that's why I think, you know, as Austin pointed out, like the innovation part of this is really important as we shift more and more of our grids over to cleaner and better sources of energy. And even beyond climate change, like a lot of people die for the sake of coal fire plants and nuclear energy and hydroelectric energy is a lot safer for the humans um, around them and in those areas than coal fire or natural gas will ever be. Austin's nodding when you were talking about uh, nuclear and Austin does have degrees in uh, the hard sciences. So Austin, why don't you go ahead and take a second uh, to touch on that. <laughs> I want to hear how great nuclear power is. Let me hear it. It energizes me. Yes. So um, although I, you know, I have degrees in chemistry and biology, so it is separated from nuclear. I do have family that work like at Y-12, family that are involved with nuclear power, nuclear armaments, et cetera. That is, as far as I'm aware, the future. If you are going to be talking about long-term solutions. It is looking at alternative energy sources that are reliable and have a high yield for what you put into them. Nuclear is probably our best option as far as I'm aware. And I think that if we're going to have a serious, or if people are wanting to have a serious conversation about what can we do to make the future better, and that's past just carbon emissions, that's also from how can we get the most energy to the most people so they can live, you know, not comfortable is a word that's tossed around, but I mean, it is a big thing. How can we get people to live fulfilled, comfortable lives? and make things easier on them. I think a lot of that's going to be coming from nuclear power in the future as we go forward. It is safer. It is cleaner. And as Josh brought up, it's certainly safer than coal-fired power plants. And we, you know, it goes almost goes without saying that it's cleaner. So I don't know, without getting into too many specifics, I, I'm with Josh on that one. I think that uh, nuclear is the way to go. One of the big deterrents, I think, to actually following through on what we're um, uh, just reducing our emissions and then uh, finding alternative sources is that what we have most accessible at the moment is wind and solar, and there's no way to store that. So, I mean, California is a great example of the the very, very problematic attempt to use solar and things like that as your entire uh, grid or the source of power for the entire grid there. Like they have to do rolling blackouts because it's not sustainable. At this point, at least to my knowledge, we don't have anything that can actually store that energy long enough for people to actually be able to use it. You have to use it pretty much immediately. Nuclear power, that's not the case, but also we seem to be a little bit further down the road for that, which means that unfortunately, I think our tendency is to just give in and say, well, we're just going to be relying on fossil fuels at that point. One of the reasons why this conversation even started in the first place and like, oh, well, these things are not only not good enough and they're getting better, by the way, every year we get, we get further and further, is that right now the industry of fossil fuels is heavily subsidized by the U.S. government, which makes it so much more economical from just even like a not only from the company's perspective, but also from the consumer perspective. In some cases in the U.S., while electricity might be cheaper, it is still cheaper to access things, normal things that already have infrastructure in place and have had for you know years like gas or coal or oil but those are only there because the the government is intervening I'll say the word intervening and making these things cheaper so I don't think it's one I don't think it's fair to say like oh well because these things are not there yet then we'll just you know run back to coal um, but also like from from an economical perspective they're not playing in the same field level playing field 
So, Marcelo, when you say that it's not fair to say that, do you mean that we shouldn't do that or that that's not what's happening? I don't think that's what's happening. Like, you can talk about the California blackouts and, like, why those are, like, not, like, why those are the cause of electricity not being saved well enough by the grid. But at the same time, I would say that you can look at other examples, like in the Texas blackouts, where you saw a massive failure of the already pre-existing infrastructure of uh, fossil fuel uh, electricity. Oh, fossil fuel generated power and why those things are not always the best options. They're not ready. And why are they not ready? Because they're not taking the proper care for the climate that is astoundingly changing. So I feel like there are holes for, I mean, you can talk about the negatives of all of these systems all of the time, but you have to understand that some of these energy sources are not reliable in the future. And while they might be reliable now, doesn't mean that they will be um, later. And we need to look at the future. Yeah, because everything in climate change is like this 30 to 50 year period. We're never talking about right now. And I think that's kind of what makes climate, you know, climate change hard to wrap your minds around. There are significantly bad things coming, but they're still, you know, 30 years off. And we're only starting to see kind of the lightweight, like intermediate impacts. We might say like the droughts we're having, the wildfires are having are really bad, but I really hate to say this, but trust me, kids, this is barely the start. And that's where we always get to like plan in the future. Like we can't store power as great as we would like to now. Well, we're we're still using like liquid lithium ion batteries for most of our mass storage. And yeah, they're kind of terrible. But probably in the next 10, you know, five, 10 years, we'll have a whole new generation of battery technology that goes beyond lithium and provides much higher capacity, much faster recharging and much longer lifespan for the individual batteries. And then 10 to 15 years after that, that same thing will happen again. And so our ability to store and keep and even generate more power, more efficient solar panels, more clear glass that sits on top of the solar panels to let more of the light in, stuff like that will incrementally add up over time and make what already works pretty well, even better in the future. One of the main ways that we we wind up trying to reduce these emissions is just practically speaking, there's a lot of push for switching over to electric vehicles. One of the main downfalls of electric vehicles, as good as they are right now, is that the production of the lithium batteries and the recharging of the lithium batteries still requires mass amounts of some form of energy that is not as clean. So on the whole, we do reduce our energy, but a lot of times these plants that are cleaner um, and producing them or even, and, and one of the other big problems with the lithium batteries that do store a lot of really good energy for these cars right now, and it is sustainable, is once those batteries are dead, because they do die over time, where do they go? And what is the destruction to the environment there? So we're always stuck between these. And I think what the what we're trying to do is our best to just try to fix it and, and reduce it. But then when we don't reduce it enough, a lot of people's tendency is to just give up on it. I think that raises a really good point. As far as, you know, you have the conversation really centered on carbon emissions, which is fine, but people don't tend to talk about what it takes to maintain some of these systems. Like Ryan was just bringing up, you have batteries that do lose their efficiency over time and that would eventually end up in a landfill. But you also have to talk about what goes into some of these things. Namely, one of the things that was a wake up call for me was looking at what goes into the production of solar panels. It takes a lot of rare earth metals, a lot of things that you have to expend resources to mine, that you have to expend resources to produce, and they'll stop working eventually. You get about 20 25 years out of a solar panel before its efficiency starts to seriously degrade. And then you're going to have a large number of solar panels end up in a landfill at some point in the near future. And near, I mean, 25 to 35 years. So not near, near, but you know, it's coming up, you know, the bill comes due eventually. I think that's, again, why the conversation would be centering on some of these forms of energy that have a larger energy density for what you put into them, such as nuclear. And, you know, that doesn't mean we just stop using solar panels, wind turbines altogether, but there is no free lunch, so to speak, I guess is what I'm trying to get out. It takes, you know, you have to put some things in to get 
energy out. And there comes a time when the bill does come due and you have to renew some of these systems. I think there's a good parallel of the bill coming due, Austin, because it's like climate change is like our, our industry bill coming due. Like finally, it's like 150 years of nonsense humans were doing and ta-da, here it is. And we're kind of, uh, you know, we're trying to figure out how we put the shovel down and stop digging and, you know, what's digging and what's, you know, filling in the hole. And I think that certainly is going to be, you know, that kind of long-term balancing of is solar panel graveyard better um, in the long term than that. And some of those things are really hard to do because even a lot of ecological studies and product studies only look at the production of something and they don't do like a full like lifetime uh, study of what that product's going to do. How is it going to degrade in the environment? What's it going? What's its impact going to be in 50 years in the ground? And all that's just really complicated science and difficult stuff to figure out. Very true. Yeah, I think there's um, something to be said for the excesses that have occurred in the past, like you said, 150 years for sure. But I mean, to a certain extent, it's got us where we are with expanded life, you know, our lifespans growing, people living, I'm not going to say healthier lives, but having access to more things, not always the best thing, but it certainly beats living destitute. Uh, So there's been a lot of good that's come out of it. But you're absolutely right. We do need to be assessing some of these things and using the some of the excess that we've produced to move forward and become more responsible with what we have. So looking back, this has not all been like a terrible thing that is just going to culminate in doom and gloom. I guess what I want to say is there is hope and that there are people talking about these issues. And I don't know, there's a path forward. Uh, I don't think there's just one path forward to so to speak, but we're learning more every day. We're advancing and we're hopefully going to eventually learn to be better stewards of what we've been blessed with. If we're going to be a part of any type of global agreement or, or if we're going to pass any legislation, I think one of the big questions that needs to accompany that is, is what we're trying to do actually addressing the issue? And then the second question should be, is the cost going to actually be worth it? Something that we need to be aware of with the Paris Climate Bill. Now, granted, it hasn't happened yet because we pulled out of it. One of the reasons we pulled out of it is because the Paris Climate Accord was estimated to cost at least 20000 dollars per household in lost income by 2035 and it would cost an aggregate 2.5 trillion in lost GDP or gross domestic products so the United States loses their ability to produce just because we're switching over so my first question is is that worth it and secondly are we going to follow through when that's the price tag that accompanies it I think that the question is uh, from starter point a little dishonest considering that in the next 10 years, the GDP will um, will generate at least $300 trillion um, in, in the next 10 year period. So I personally don't think the cost is that high. When you reduce it to like a household per household basis, then you have different possibilities on how to reduce that, uh, that amount of loss, let's say, because you have to ask yourself, you know, who's fronting these costs? Talk about what I mentioned a little bit earlier, earlier is that obviously we're not going to make everyone pay for their own solar panel, just like we didn't make everyone pay for their own gas pipeline back in the day. This is something that needs some government intervention. If you switch the money that is going into fossil fuels and you put it in, let's say, things like these, then you get uh, tax incentives. You you get um, uh, financial programs destined to switch from one energy to the other. You, you go from gas stoves to induction stoves. You go from using uh, partly gas to gas-funded electricity to electricity eventually. Like This is a process that takes time. Um, and, I, and I do say that just to not only attack the source, but to, to say that there is ways around this. And obviously, if you keep funding gas the way you're funding it now, 
and you're trying to push electricity, you're going to find more barriers in the way than if you just said, okay, you know, let's actually try this for once and pass policies that will actually make this transition easier. I could seed everything the Heritage Foundation said and accept all of their harms as true. Sure, whatever. I'm not too concerned. Um, we are all going to die. And maybe that's a little frank way of putting it, but the, the totalizing impact of climate change is an extermination level event. It's total ecosystem collapse and another great extinction event on Earth. And if we look at the rate of species that are going extinct, they're going extinct at the same rate as great extinction events in the past that we see in the fossil records. We can see species disappear out of the fossil records, which meant they were no longer around. Species are dying as fast today as they did during those other historic times. And it's happened six other times in Earth's history. And on top of that, the amount of harm that's going to be generated by climate impact will obliterate any cost it takes to reduce the harm that's coming. Just here's some fun ones. Phoenix, Arizona might not have clean water by 2040. And I'm like, mean like they won't have water at all. We will need to evacuate a large part of Arizona because we will not be able to supply water. Not that we will be rationing water. They will be out of water. And that's going to happen to a large parts around the world. And some of the countries that are going to be the hardest hit by the impacts of climate change are already like in the bottom 40% of stable and peaceful countries in the world. And so we're going to see mass international refugee crisis, domestic refugee crisis, and we're going to see possibly, you know, up to a billion people displaced by 2050 by climate change. And so the economic impacts of letting it unfurled, unfettered are going to greatly exceed almost any attempt to prevent it. One of the difficulties about working with this type of stuff is that it's always going to be hypothetical, right? Like it's like you said, Marcelo, it's not a question of is this happening, but we do have problems nailing down the extent of the damage in certain terms. We get ranges, but we don't necessarily know that for sure um, to be whatever the the damage is projected to be. There is a level of uncertainty that accompanies that and that just accompanies science in general. When they ran the statistics of what will happen, and like Josh mentioned, one of the things that they also did was they looked at, well, what if the United States cut their emissions by 100%, just complete, flat, cold turkey, stopped? The Earth would only be cooled because of how much we put out by 0.2 degrees Celsius. Which means that even if we could get ourselves down to zero, which, you know, we're not even trying to get that low when it comes to the ways that we're cutting emissions, it's still, unfortunately, not making a huge difference. Does that mean don't do anything? Absolutely not. But I think it's also important to realize realistically that um, if all the countries met their pledge, so China went along with it, the U.S. went along with it, the Earth is still projected to warm by three degrees Celsius by 2100. So there's a very large portion of this that's already baked into the cake, so to speak. It's already there and is already enacted. So the question is, what can we do to kind of balance the two thoughts? I don't, I, I agree with you, Marcelo, that I don't think that the answer is do nothing, but I also don't think that the answer lies in completely wrecking GDP when unfortunately there's not a lot that's going to be mitigated if we were to do that, even to 100%. I think it is worth noting that's one country down to like negative carbon emissions. And so that's kind of, yeah. So if the United States, you know, goes down, we can ourselves um, bring it down 0.2. And so that makes it really interesting to think about that 1.5 Celsius limit that um, the Paris Accords lay out, that the United States is 0.2 of that 1.5 total in the world. So we're a significant part on our plane of, you know, can we bring it down even 0.1? Can we even bring it down a quarter of a point? Because there's 197 countries 
um, or however many in total that are involved in this and around the world. And so never everyone can do their part and bring it down by you know, 0.1, 0.2 on their end. Um, we will hit the goal. So if we do hit the goal and we reduce that, if all the countries, like they said, hit that goal and we only reduce it by three degrees Celsius, what's the significance of that? Um, well, one I always thought was a really good quip from some scientists I heard who worked up in Greenland is the difference between water and ice is one degrees. And so that really doesn't seem like that will change a lot, but it will change a lot. So one of the things that could happen if the earth gets too hot is what they call Gulf Stream collapse. Now, they don't think this is too likely yet, but it's still one of those might happen. And what that is, is how is how water in the Gulf of Mexico is basically brought up the Atlanta or the Atlantic Sea on a ocean conveyor belt, and it warms over there by England and such. If that Gulf Stream breaks down, not only will it devastate... Ecosystems in both parts of the ocean, England's going to freeze over and it's going to be similar to Icelandic conditions over, like basically overnight when the Gulf Stream fails. So, part of that threshold of even like each degree C we miss by our target, we can realistically impact that out to probably millions of deaths and hundreds of millions of displaced people, a lot of bad things. There's going to be some really gnarly things about climate change that happen in the future. I have a little bit of a different take, I guess, as far as the future predictions kind of things go. Again, a lot of it is obviously based on models. They're able to extrapolate out based on what we know now into the future. It is impossible to account for new technologies that will arise in the future as you develop these models. And of course, this is just kind of how data works. You do have to work with what you have at the moment to see where we could possibly go. But when I hear the predictions of you know full ecosystem collapse and everything else, while that is certainly a possibility and it's in the realm of possibility if nothing happens today, I think that if we look at the amount of concern that is being displayed by particularly people our age, the people that are going to be in control in the next few years, and that's coming up quicker and quicker. Guys, we're getting old, sorry to tell you. But I think that we do have to take that into account. Um, not to say that, that we should not be concerned, and no one here today is saying that we should just forget about all this and just kind of continue to live exactly how we live. I don't think anybody here is saying that. But I don't think we need to resign ourselves to, we have to give up everything we know and love or else everything's going to die. I don't think that's rational. I think we do need to make some changes. I think we need to, to a certain extent, focus on some of the changes we could be making. And that's kind of, you know, that's what we're discussing today. But I don't think we just need to resign ourselves to, you know, giving away all control, giving away everything that we know and love, our entire way of life, or else the entire world is going to collapse. No, I'm not advocating that everything stays the same. I do think we need to make some changes and we have a plethora of options. We have a plethora of things that we can do. But at the same time, I don't think there's need to be hopeless, if I could just put it that way. I am a little bit hopeless. It's okay. Um, because I, I believe that I believe that we have to do something. And we know the things that we can do. And we know the things that and the things that we can do are things that we we have to do. I just I don't really and if I can like appeal to emotion for a little bit, like I know comparing like what the US pollutes and what the US emits compared to other countries. Like like the, you know, you can just look at the little charts. And I understand the skepticism around like, well, like, do I really want to give up what I have right now? Like, obviously, no, like, we're, we're not going to ask everyone to just die tomorrow to cut our emissions by 100%. That's not, you know, I don't think anyone reasonable is asking that. Well, almost anyone reasonable is asking that. But I think I think to a point, we have to understand that whatever happens here is you're not only like making the 
these changes so that we have a better life tomorrow. But it's like, so everyone does. And like the US with this immense like amount of power, not only in changing things here, but in changing things in other countries, it's like, you know, we we could be the leaders and maybe we already are the leaders in uh, developing all of this new technology. And the best time to do it was yesterday, you know, so so why not start now? I think when talking about the future impacts and how all of this was going to um, play out, science communicator Hank Green, you know him from Crash Course, SciShow, and stuff like that, he said the climate change isn't going to be a technological problem. The United States has all of the economic and technological power to shield in its, in its citizens from most of the awful things that will happen. Um, but it's going to be a justice issue and not a technological issue, is how he phrased it. Because as much as the United States pollutes and as much as the current climate change as the fault of our industrial revolution, there are countries who who have barely polluted anything in all of their history and year to date, and they're going to um, fall into the sea as the ocean level rises and be completely obliterated as their homes are swallowed by the ocean because Americans and the other developed worlds couldn't cut back their emissions. And sure, you know, we're not saying give up everything, but the idea that we can't eat red meat a little bit less, that we can't, you know, uh, we can, you know, buy cars more so focused on gas mileage than the fancy feature or how the car looks, but you know, look at what's going to be helpful. Like we can make changes that will help people because a lot of the harms of climate change are going to be inflicted on people who had no part in creating climate change. I agree with you, Josh, that a lot of the harms are going to be inflicted on people who weren't a part of the problem to begin with. They didn't contribute as much. However, I I would like to push back a little bit on the idea that the things that you mentioned, like switching cars and things like that, are actually going to have a significant effect. I think that they're good things to do. And I also agree with Marcelo that the answer is certainly not do nothing. However, I think that one of the things we need to do moving forward is starting to find ways to improve the standard of living, help and spread the ways that we can mitigate these problems and go after energy that's actually going to be more sustainable so that we all rise. I think that cutting back uh, in many instances doesn't wind up addressing the core problem because like you know, the model suggested, if you cut it 100% back, which is way more than we're even trying to do right now, it's not going to make a substantial enough difference that the fate of those people is going to change. So I would caution against, you know, almost doing it as more of a performative act when the answer seems to be something else entirely. Not that we can't do those things, but rather I would push past that and say it's not going to be enough. And this might be a good place for us to kind of transition over as we move into our hot takes for uh, what would our suggestions be for maybe tangible acts or like specific avenues that we could go if we want to touch on that quickly. I wouldn't call installing solar panels on your roof performative um i would i wouldn't call trying to push on the government to institute more eco-friendly policies that don't impact vulnerable communities every day like fossil fuel pipelines and stuff like that i wouldn't call that performative i think that there's things that we know that are harming the planet right now that are being backed by not only big corporations but those corporations are influencing the way the government makes decisions i think all of that i think we we know what's we know what's harming the planet right now. We know what we have to do. And sure, we can trust the science that a better technology will come in the future. But I don't, I don't think that's a good enough argument to keep things the way they are. 
No, I, I agree with you, Marcel. It's it's not an argument to keep things the way that they are. But what could we do? Because my, my main point here is I don't think that just cutting back the emissions is going to be enough. I think that there's other avenues. So, I mean, one thing that I would throw out, I think, is nuclear energy being more sustainable. And I think since we're still dependent on the carbon emissions to an extent, especially these developing nations, many of them are 100% dependent. Uh, Oman, Qatar, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, those are 100% dependent, not just for the way that they function, but also for their economies. So especially for them, and I know that they're not emitting as much, but if we're trying to improve the planet, everybody would have to cut back. So one suggestion that I would make, I think that we could pursue if we're dependent on those emissions is fracking. I think that fracking is going to reduce the amount of emissions that take place as we get the oil. And also it doesn't fix the issue when we use that, that energy source, but it does since we are dependent on it to an extent, wind up reducing that. Fracking releases very harmful chemicals, not only in the air, but also in the ground while they are used. Because even though they're like technically like drilling with water in a way and like in a very fast speed, some of the chemical used to actually do the fracking is still harming not only the ground and possibly putting that land for years and decades to come, but they're also harming the people who live near those places uh, and even a little far away. I I am 100% against any type of solution that still involves fossil fuels. I, I think uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really trust uh, greener gas. I would rather have no gas. I think the future is primarily exclusively in the renewable power and, in my opinion, nuclear backbone. Because, like, even as much as we're still using some less than ideal materials that we have to use, like, once we figure out finally how to have a, and I know no one's going to, maybe Austin will know this one does, but a thorium reactor, we can figure out how to get those things online and mass produce those. Um, we could change a lot about how we conduct our economy. But I do think a lot of it um, is concerned consumption related. And I think a lot about how people think about their consumption and we can mitigate impacts of consumption by cleaning up the energy at the start. And so then it matters less than that you're using this excess of um, electricity, but stuff in like how we use our plastics and how we use different materials. The example I gave with the, the uh, meat farming, there's literally not enough space on earth to hold all of the cows if every person ate like Americans do. So it is for some things very literally a consumption problem of where there are excesses and you know lavishries and some economies that are unsustainable and do need to be brought back at least some but you know as we move forward we want cleaner and you know energy that's going to kill less people i don't think that fracking is the best option i don't think that it's the direction that should um, be the goal but i think that if we're dependent on it as a stepping stone while we are developing nuclear energy um, to that point i think that it's the it's it's the better option to drilling and so because of that i think that that can be a tangible step that doesn't wreck stuff I guess just to add on to what Ryan said, I think that is something to consider since we are talking about, you know, the physical sciences and the economic implications of our energy production. As much as I would love to say, I don't like this type of energy, let's cut it all right now, this moment, do something different. We do have to think about pragmatic concerns of how do we get to the next step? Like Ryan, I mean, Ryan hit the nail on the head when he said stepping stone. And I think we do need to be considering that as we go forward. And I think we are considering that, you know, what what are the steps that we can take to get to the next thing? I think that there is a place, particularly I would consider this a transitory period for energy production. Josh brought up thorium reactors that have 
I'm not going to pretend like I'm prepared to go into super specifics on it, but it has a lot of promise. I think I'm with Josh as far as that goes with a backbone of nuclear and some peripheral renewable energy sources, quote unquote, uh, what would traditionally be considered renewable would be things that could be used in certain environments, nuclear being used in the rest of those environments that those are not necessarily um, feasible. I think that's the way to go for the future. But in this transitory period, I think there is a place for some fracking. And I do think there is a place for not 100% like tomorrow we shut down every single coal and every single oil field like tomorrow. I don't think that's feasible. There are some technologies that are going to help make this more of a transitory period, such as carbon cap. Uh, where we're able to isolate some of the greenhouse gases going into the atmosphere. We're able to isolate them, bring them out of the atmosphere and get them sequestered away so that they wouldn't be contributing to uh, thermal effects. But that isn't to say that that's going to be around forever. That's not to say that oil and coal are even the best forms of energy. They're certainly not. Energy density wise, they are absolutely dwarfed by nuclear. But I guess all that to say, without losing sight of um, the fact that we do have to operate on a step-by-step basis, there is a bright future ahead. I think we do need to take steps towards it, but you can't just take, or we're not going to be able to take just one giant leap. That's going to cause a lot of more problems than the good that it would produce, if that makes sense. All right. We will be right back with our hot takes. All right. So I guess I'll kick off the hot takes. Um, And again, as I usually bring every week, not the hottest of hot takes. Um, I think that there is a place for, as I mentioned before the break, I think we are in a transitory period as far as energy production goes. I think there is a place for fracking to occur for today, not permanently. I think there is a place for some oil and some uh, gas to be used for today, not permanently. I don't think it's an excuse to be complacent, but there are some technologies, accessory technologies like carbon capture that do make it cleaner. They technically do make these things cleaner. I don't think they should be on our plate forever. All that being said, I think if we're going to move in the future, we don't need to have too rosy of a lens as far as quote unquote renewable energy sources. Solar and wind have been touted more than I think they should. I think they're part of the solution, but I don't think they are the total encompassing solution. The main issues with that come down to energy storage and also the materials that go into producing solar panels and wind turbines. You need massive infrastructure because wind turbines are absolutely gigantic. You have to get them across the country somehow. They have about 20 years before you have to start really replacing them. Solar panels, you have about 25 years before you have to start replacing them. And they take rare earth metals and some other things that are very hard and very earth damaging to collect. Does that mean we knocked them off the list completely? No, I'm down for multiple things to be included in our energy production. I think it's good to have a variety of sources of energy, but they are not a magic pill. Now, the closest thing to a magic pill that we have is nuclear. And this all comes down to energy density. Just looking at a list here from energy education, you can go find this online yourself. Coal has an energy density of 24 megajoules per kilogram. That means you have a kilogram of coal, you burn it, you get 24 megajoules of energy. Natural gas, 55 megajoules per kilogram. You have a kilogram of natural gas, you burn it, you get about 55 megajoules. Uranium-235, and this is like current nuclear reactors, 3.9 million megajoules of energy per kilogram. Now, a kilogram of uranium is a lot, don't get me wrong. But all that to say, it absolutely dwarfs other forms of energy production. It is cleaner, it is safer if you look at statistics on death, and I think that that is the way forward. All that did say this, there is a message of hope, there is a way forward, we can't stay the same as we are today, we don't need to be complacent, but we do have a path forward and I think it's a good one. Oh, and that's just technology we have today. Like Josh mentioned earlier, thorium reactors are on the horizon, and who knows what the next genius is going to come up with. We don't put our hope in things that we don't have at the moment, though, so we have to come up with a pragmatic solution that is going to be a stepwise reduction in carbon emissions, not altogether tomorrow, 
But I do think that we have technologies at our disposal at the moment that we don't have to pretend there is magic, such as a magical renewable energy source that is going to carry us through with no emissions at all. But we do have actual solutions like nuclear and then some peripheral renewable energy at our disposal that we could start phasing in. We need more science topics. We'll hear more from Austin. <laughs> and what can I say? Here's my hottest take so far. If you consume as much as an American, and I can include myself here, then you're entitled. Americans are entitled, uh, you know, sure, put China there. China is entitled. All developed or in development are entitled for believing that the earth owes them anything at all, just because they have the capacity to pollute and consume as much as they do. Um, when in reality, in this call, everyone here, and perhaps most people uh, in this side of the hemisphere consume more than they should, and should as in more than what the earth can sustainably um, support. So we're all entitled in a way. Sure. I'll be that, that'll be my doomer take. But I don't think anybody is as entitled as the corporations who are profiting off of very harmful practices that are damaging the planet, not only here. And we see examples in this country, literally with the Dakota Access Pipeline or the lack of, uh, OK, drinkable water in Flint, Michigan, but also in other countries with untold effects that we don't hear or, or don't care about because they're far away. No one is as entitled as they are. And they think they have the right to pollute this earth just to generate profit. And while they have all of that massive profit, they also have the capacity to influence decisions that also affect them and then affect us. Again, I will go against in, in a way, I, I do understand that we consume too much beef, whatever. But even if that was the case, we also need to understand that this is also because corporations are behind it and they have the power to prevent other better ways of generating energy from passing because right now they're generating profit from the things that are happening right now, like the status quo in place. And, you know, there's people behind that that are trying to ensure and are trying to push down on many of the good energies, many of the good technologies that Austin is talking about. But because they have the power to do so right now, I will, I will, I will say it. I don't, I don't think. I mean, obviously, things shouldn't stay this way. But I also think that we need to have a radical change, not only for us, but in in general. And we need to try to find a way to make this stop. Uh, but we're fighting powers that are much bigger than us and have much more money than us. And while those powers are still at the top, then they will ensure that things stay the same. I feel like. I am afraid because I feel like in the future, there's a possibility, almost a certainty that we'll get to 2050. We will not reach our goals. And then people will be like, well, we know it was going to happen. You know, we, we knew things wouldn't be this way. And what, what, we could, what could have we done? I'll kick off my hot take by saying that climate change is a problem. It needs to be addressed. I do not think the answer is to do nothing. I also do question uh, the way that we are doing things and whether or not that's actually addressing the problem, not only in the, the way to the fullest capacity that it can, but also if it's targeting uh, where we should be. So I'm going to stick by my guns and criticize the Paris Climate Agreement. I think that it doesn't do what it's supposed to. And the main reason I say that is because it really doesn't have any teeth to actually make sure that each of the nations do what they they said that they're going to. Case in point, the United States pulled out. China is still in there, but they're not doing it. And there's no way to actually enforce this. Therefore, I don't think that the accords really do anything other than give politicians a platform to talk from. I think that it's a good idea. I think that we could be following these steps, particularly if it was more detailed in how exactly are we going to lower these emissions. But I also think that there's a mismatch between the direction that it's trying to go, where it's trying to target, and the direction 
directions that it's taking us in our tangible steps. For example, I think that like Austin mentioned, and I'm sure Josh will talk about in a second here, uh, thorium, the different um, nuclear options that we have currently as well, those will be much more sustainable, much better options to actually deal with instead of just taking the smaller steps of eating less beef or um, switching over to an electric vehicle. I don't think that those are the steps that give us what we need. I don't think that the Paris Climate Accords give us all that we need. I think it's a good starting point. I think that we actually need something uh, with a little bit more teeth for it to actually be effective. In the late 1970s, one of ExxonMobil's climate scientists did a study and found out that if current production and consumption of fossil fuels continued, there would be catastrophic damage done to all life on Earth by the carbon pollutions. In 1989, ExxonMobil helped found a group called the Global Climate Climate Coalition, which also included Shell and British Petroleum, and they stopped to fight the first, and they were the first kind of political lobbying group against climate action that really took place. And they lobbied pretty heavily. And because of their actions in 1997, um, the United States did not sign the Kyoto Accord, or the Kyoto Protocols, which was kind of like a generation one Paris climate accord. And because they lobbied and, you know, went and did all of their political machinations, we didn't join that accord. But Exxon has known they were killing the planet since the 70s. And their response to that was to form a lobbying group and spread disinformation and fund phony studies like the Heritage Foundation does and continue climate denial to continue their own profits, knowing they were killing the planet. ExxonMobil knew what they were doing and still knows what they're doing. And I think I'm going to give Ryan a point here when it says it doesn't matter that much what individuals do. Um, and that's because of a point Marcella made. And it's because it's truly in the hands of these gigantic corporations that with their own actions pollute far more than the individuals of humanity combined. Literally, the decisions of corporations affect climate more than the decisions of all 7 billion people on earth, because that's how much power they hold and how much influence they have in determining in climate change. And and one of the fundamental contradictions, and I think that Marcel also pointed this out super well, was how we think we are we are entitled and we think we have a right to this growth and we have the right to this profit and we have a right to you know use the earth as we will and there's not going to be any consequences. But the you know the reality is is there are is going to be consequences because there's this inherent contradiction between capitalism and the state of the planet Earth. And that is capitalism wants infinite growth on a fundamentally finite resource that is our one planet. And today, as the author Holly calls it actually in the title of his piece, we are advertising on the edge of an apocalypse. All right. I'm sure you find yourself somewhere between the liars. Join us next time. Goodbye for now. (laughs) 